today on Fuzzy Logic, we're looking at awesome animals. We're going to be talking about snails, bees, mice that are getting a bit chilly, cane toads, dinosaurs, dogs, and the uh, amazing monotremes you find here in Australia. All that more coming up today on Fuzzy Logic. And welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday, right here on 2XXFM Community Radio. Uh, thanks very much to Irish Voice for that great show beforehand. And uh, we've filled the studio now with... Uh, there's five of us in here today to talk about science. My name's Broderick, and it's a pleasure to have you with me once again, listening along. And uh, let's make our way around the studio. First up this morning, we've got Phoebe. Good, good morning, Phoebe. Good morning, Broad. How are you today? I'm going well, going well. Good to see you. Next to Phoebe's Dan. How you doing, Broad? Good, mate. Good. And then we've got Nina. Hey, Broad. And Sian. Hello. Ah, look, fantastic to have all of you in with us this morning, um, because we've got a Amazing show lined up on some of the cool animals that are out there and some of the interesting research that's being done with animals lately to show just some of the uh, the interesting things that they can do in their brains and their bodies and what's going on in the world. But before we get into what's going on recently, let's have a look at what's happened in the past. On this day in science, today of course being the 24th of November, uh, back in 1859, this was the day in which The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection was first published in England, written by Charles Darwin, the British naturalist. It detailed the scientific evidence he'd collected since his voyage on the Beagle in the 1830s. He presented the idea that species are a result of a gradual biological evolution in which nature encourages, through natural selection, the propagation of those species best suited to their environments. And uh, we might be talking a bit more about uh, evolution and how things have changed because of that throughout history today. Um, But uh, this book was published back in 1859, uh, prompted by the fact that... uh, Darwin was told by a gentleman called Charles Lyell that Alfred Russell Wallace, a naturalist working in Borneo, was approaching the same conclusions, so Darwin should get in first and get his book out there, which he did. Uh, An interesting one on this day as well. In 1793, uh, following the French Revolution, the new government wanted a new calendar of reason, also known as the French Revolutionary Calendar, and they wanted this to replace the Gregorian calendar. Now, the reason I chose this event was because it was developed by a committee of an interesting bunch of people. It contained mathematicians, astronomers, poets, and dramatists, um, which is, of course, all the types of people you need to create a calendar. Um, This calendar had 12 months, but all were 30 days long, and each had a... uh, each month had three 10-day uh, decades instead of seven-day weeks, and five supplementary days were added to make a 365-day year, or six bonus days in the leap year. And uh, they came up with a scheme of new names for the months and everything, and uh, the calendar was backdated um, in the sense that the day of the first year was set at uh, 22nd September 1792 to mark the start of the first of the new republic, and this lasted for about 14 years in total before it was just given up on in 1805. 
finally, on this day in 1639, uh, Jeremiah Horrocks, who's an English astronomer and clergyman, measured a transit of Venus, uh, the first ever to be observed. Um, he applied Kepler's prediction uh, that in uh, 1631 Venus would transit the Sun. Uh, Horrocks then calculated that these transits occurred not singly, but in pairs eight years apart. Uh, so Horrocks was preparing his equipment for the next transit, and uh, he had a simple telescope which was mounted on a wooden beam to project a solar image onto a piece of paper marked with a six-inch graduated circle. Uh, from this, he made some measurements of uh, Venus uh, moving across the Sun and uh, calculated the value for the solar parallax. Uh, was smaller than previously recorded, which means that that was determining how far the Sun was away from the Earth and made the conclusion that the Sun was further away from the Earth back in 1639. But, of course, we had uh, the last transit of Venus was last year, uh, around June sometime, June uh, the 5th, I think it was, um, or June the 4th possibly here, um, and uh, if you missed that one, unfortunately, you're going to have to wait till 2117 uh, before you can see another one. So if you're still around then, that is when the next transit of Venus will be 2117. And then again, uh, eight years after that. So there you go. Some amazing stuff uh, happened on this day in science, uh, the 24th of November. But enough about history. Let's look at what's happening in the world at the moment, and specifically the animal kingdom today, some of the amazing stuff that's happening with animals. And, uh, Dan, you're going to kick us off with a bit of a small story about snails. Yeah, well, we all know that when we get stressed, we tend to become forgetful, um, but scientists wanted to see how this actually affects the brain, and so they decided to use animals that have a very small number of neurons, but very large neurons, and so they decided to look at pond snails. Now... What they did was they actually trained pond snails to respond um, to a stimulus and then see how being stressed within that stimulus um, affected their memory. So what they did was they took pond snails and put them in low oxygenated water, which meant they had to come to the surface to breathe. When they came to the surface to breathe, the article says that they poked the snails gently to make them retract back into the water. <laughs> right? This is how they set up this training regime. <clears throat> And what they did then was they started to introduce low calcium concentrations into the water, which told the snails that there was a high population of pond snails around, so that there was going to be more competition for food. And so they looked at how well the snails' brains reacted to these, to these two stressful stimuli, both the poking and the low calcium concentration, and had a look at what the neurons did. Right, so just stressing the snails out completely, making them go whack, going... What's going on here? Yeah, that, that's it. That, they, they just start to forget what's going on. Because yeah. once, when they did the first one with the poking of the snails, mm. they noticed that the snails were less frequently visiting the surface of the water because they knew that there was a stressful stimulus at the top. Right. When they introduced the calcium, they just completely freaked out and just started doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, and, of course, they said they can't extrapolate that to how humans respond to stress, <laughs> but they're suggesting that they'll go on to further research in mammals and hopefully work out how stress affects our memories. Okay, so why did they start with snails for this research? Well, as, as I said, they have very large neurons, so yes. they can look at them and actually put electrodes on these snail neurons and watch the, the brain activity. And there's also very few of them, so they don't have to sort through many to find which one is specifically attached to memory function. Oh, okay. Mm. Crazy stuff. This is weird. Trust trust the Canadians and the British to to look at pond snails. Yeah, 
yeah, you know, no, that's, that's right. I just love that someone was coming home at the end of the day and their partner was saying, what'd you do at work today, honey? Oh, I poked some snails. Like, there's a job out there for everyone. I, I just like that they specifically mentioned that they poked them gently. gently. You know, there, there was no abuse of snails in this research, you know. It was just kind, kind <laughs> no, poking. No snails were harmed in the making of this article. Yeah. They just I, got really stressed out. <laughs> so you do start to wonder if it's that whole, you know, were the researchers stressed when they came up with this? So like, well, I'm stressed. I'm going to take my stress out of these poor snails. <laughs> I do feel sorry for them, though. Like, you must just be thinking, man, I've got to breathe. I've got to breathe. I can't going up to breathe. Oh, no, 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 I can't get someone's poking me. Like, just, you know, I can imagine swimming underwater and just every time someone just shoving your head back down again into the water. Wouldn't be fun times, but look, hopefully those snails are still all right. They, they, maybe they put them into retirement <laughs> after this experiment. Yeah, their, their post-traumatic stress disorder was just blowing their mind, so I think they're on some psychological couch at the moment, you know, yeah. talking about their experience. Having some fun time. Yeah. Well, I was um, listening recently to... Uh, uh, the font of all science of knowledge, Hamish and Andy, uh, the other day on the radio, and they were actually talking about um, some uh, uh, new uh, robotic that uh, controls cockroaches' brains. Um, and this is something I've actually seen online. You can buy... It's a commercial product. You can buy it yourself where uh, you... Uh, put the you freeze the cockroaches, so put them to sleep, and then you can attach this little chip into their the cockroach's brain. And again, I think it's because they've got such a simple brain that it works. And then uh, when they wake up, you can uh, alter what's going on in the chip through your iPhone. It's a little app, and so you can make the cockroach move around where you want it. Oh my goodness! <laughs> in, case, no time for that. in case having a robotic car wasn't good enough yeah, for you, no, no. Drive your little I'm cockroach I'm sensing the future the of spy technology here. Like, <laughs> let's think about this seriously. Cockroaches are one of the hardiest insects around. I mean, supposedly they can su- survive nuclear explosions. If you have a remote-controlled cockroach in like a nuclear explosion zone. Hmm. Look, possibilities are endless. It, it could totally work. The only thing was, and this is a uh, testament to how amazing brains can be, is that eventually the cockroaches would stop following those stimuli because the brain would change and adapt and go, well, I'm not going to listen to that. Because obviously when you're pressing the buttons on your iPhone, it's triggering something in the brain and the brain response is going turn left, turn right, do whatever. But eventually the brain goes, well, I'm not listening to that anymore. This isn't the response we want. And so the brain starts changing. And so after, I'm not sure what time period it is, but after a small time period, the cockroach stops obeying um, what you're doing, what you're telling it to do, and just goes on its merry way again. So what we need to do is then put them in some water and push their heads under the water, just <laughs> stress them out, just make them forget, and then we can yeah. use them again. All right, totally work, totally work like that. <laughs> um, well, look to continue on the vein of um, research on a small. Uh, simple animals. <laughs> um, I found some research that came uh, out of the uh, Macquarie University here in Australia, looking at bees, um, and I think bees are absolutely fascinating um, because uh, you know they only have a brain the size of a sesame seed, but they can do some amazing uh, calculations. You know, they navigate to each other, they do the waggle dance to communicate to other bees where the pollen supply is, where the awesome flowers are. They're the original twerkers, aren't they? Exactly. (laughs) Miley Cyrus stole the bees dance. Look, that's all she was doing to us. She was just saying, guys, the food's at the back. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But the latest research to come out looking at bees is looking at uncertainty. And um, there's the possibility that bees uh, can be indecisive as well. Um, 
So, because obviously when you decide uh, on doing something, whether there's a good or a bad result and the consequences of that decision, you've got you to make a decision in your head and there's a relatively complex sort of thought process that's going on there. Uh, and so this... Um, They've tested uh, decision-making with primates, primates and rats, um, but they decided to test it on bees. And so what these uh, researchers did was uh, they took some bees and built a test apparatus where bees could fly into one of two chambers um, and drink from one of two targets in these chambers. Now, if uh, the bees landed on the target that was located above uh, a black bar they'd find a sucrose solution. So sweet, rewarding, they loved that, they really enjoyed that, that's like the reward. But if they landed on a target that was uh, below a black bar, they'd find a vicious solution. So obviously something you don't like, uh, punishment there. Uh, so they want to land on the ones above the black bar. And the bees pick up this pretty quickly. They start going, well, I'm not going to go for the bitter one, I'm going to go for the sweet one, landing above that black bar. However, what the researchers then did was they made it a bit harder for the bees and they started moving the target closer and closer to that black bar. So it was less obvious whether it was above or below that black bar. And as the target got closer and closer to the black bar, uh, the bees are still being allowed, able to fly between chambers, so between the sweet and the, the, the bitter chamber, um, they were they were also able to fly away from the two chambers if they didn't want to do anything. And what researchers found was when they gave the bees the option to fly away, they would. If the decision was too hard, if the targets were too close to the black bar, they couldn't work out which was going to be the sweet solution. The bees would just go, well, I don't know which one's got the sweet stuff for me, I'm just going to fly away. So make, take the easy option out. Um, which was really interesting. And in fact... Um, on some trials, when they were forced to make a decision, uh, they didn't necessarily make the best decision and pick the best target. But on um, times when they were uh, able to opt out, they'd opt out and then they'd come back in for another one and when they were certain of it, they'd go for it and get it right. So some really interesting stuff there with bees. And, and um, you know, it's interesting to think um, how they might be thinking about this. Uh, it's possible that, uh, as with other animals, this behaviour could be explained by associative mechanisms, so associating the right um, uh, when it's above with the, the sugary solution. Although opting out wasn't directly awarding... Um, sorry, the associative mechanisms is because opting out isn't necessarily directly rewarding. Um, bees could have associated opting out with avoiding punishment, so avoiding drinking that bitter solution. So if they're not sure that they opt out, well, that's good, I don't have to drink the bitter stuff. Um, so it's, it's possible that they could be associating with that or they could actually be making a decision. And um, the problem is we don't actually know when it comes to looking at brains, which is the simpler decision for a brain to make, whether it's simpler to decide, well, it's too difficult to tell, I'm going to back out, whether it's simpler, easier to decide, well, I'm going to back out because I, I won't get punished then and drink bitter stuff. Um, so obviously some more research is still being done here in the brain, um, but for now we can see that bees are, uh, can make some sort of decision there and uh, back out when they're not sure what's going to happen. I just want to know how they force the bees to make a decision. You said that they could do that. How do you force a bee to make a decision? 
Well, Poke what, it in the head. <laughs> yeah, no, what I was going to say is they put them in the freezer and attach a chip to their brain <laughs> and take out their iPhone app. And, and then they don't have a choice. That's yeah. it. Yeah. You know. yeah. But if I, if I wasn't sure if I was going to get a, a handful of cake or a handful of Brussels sprouts, I would just walk away. I wouldn't be interested. So I feel the bees have got the right choice. Well, that's Brussels. right. And I think it was just simply blocking off that option to exit the rooms again. Um, so rather than uh, making the decision there. Um, so, yeah, yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah, I wonder though, like if how like the correlations between human decision making is a matter of how high the reward is or how high the risk is. Well, that's right. I mean, maybe they could, uh, you know, take this further and and do you know, salty versus um, sorry, sweet versus bitter, or you know, I don't know whether bees would suffer from electric shocks, but whether electric shock being a really bad. <laughs> oh. I, I'm just like, is this why you're not in the lab, Broderick? Possibly. This is why I'm a chemist, not a biologist. <laughs> um, you know, but yeah, if you did step up those, those, those bad decisions, the risk versus reward, whether the bees... And maybe that's a way to test how the bees are making the decision. Yeah. They could do a Milgram experiment on the bees where they, like, make them torture each other. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure, sure that that would work with the bees. Look, have that... Com- <laughs> Press the button and then you might get shocked over there. What are, we, what are yeah. you doing next year, Brod? Let's do that Let's as a research project. Let's test some bees around, certainly. <laughs> if there's anyone out there that wants to fund that sort of research... <laughs> Let's do some crowdsourcing, yes. Yeah. We'll need yeah. $4 billion for that. Thanks, guys. That's right. That's the new trend in science <laughs> research, isn't it? Crowdsourcing. Yeah. So as long as people want it, we can do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, let's move to another... Um, interesting bit of research that's being done on animals. We're going to go slightly up in the animal kingdom now uh, to a vertebrate and uh, look at mice yarn. Yeah, so we're looking at the fact that mice don't like to be cold, which I think is fair enough. I don't like to be cold either. It's groundbreaking um, research. Groundbreaking <laughs> research. <laughs> da, 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 da. <laughs> don't like bit. to be cold. Well, what this is actually looking at is that the temperature that mice are kept at for research could actually affect tumour growth in them. So... Uh, Mice are normally kept at about 20 to 26 degrees Celsius for research. Uh, For a couple of reasons, um, it's better for the researchers. They don't like being kept at really warm temperatures when they're doing their work. They also don't... It means they don't have to change the cages as often. Um, But another side effect of it is that um, mice produce bigger litters at 20 to 26 degrees Celsius, but they prefer to be at around 30 to 31. Um, But what actually was found was that tumours were growing a lot faster in mice when they're being tested for cancer and um, medication at about this temperature. So they tested tumour growth in mice at 20 to 26 and 30 degrees Celsius and it was found that at 30, five types of tumours grew a lot slower um, because, um, yeah, because it was... You know, warmer, I don't know, something. Um, But also that the mice preferred to be at the warmer temperature. So what they're thinking is that at a colder temperature, mice are putting more of their energy into actually staying warm than fighting off the tumours. And this could actually have a lot of implications for further research, uh, especially in, um, you know, medical research and immunology. Um, They said that the cool housing temperatures may mean that the control group are not fighting the cancer as well as an unstressed mouse would. So there we go, stressed animals again. Um, (laughs) Which could make the drug appear more effective than it really is in the treatment group. And it also might explain why some drugs um, don't work as well when they go into the clinic as would have been predicted from mouse models. 
So there's lots of implications, but then that really goes on to say, well, how can we keep them warmer? My dad suggested little mouse jackets. Um, <laughs> But uh, the researchers say that uh, they could give them more bedding to make warmer nests or add more mice to the cage because they like to huddle in big groups. Um, but they don't actually think it's practical to increase the housing temperature. So they are looking for other ways to keep them warm. They just need to introduce a line of lab bikinis instead of lab coats and then the researchers can just be the right temperature and deal with it and the mice <laughs> will be perfectly happy as well. Well, I wondered if the, the same thing applies to people. Like, should we be all moving to the tropics to stay warmer and stop these tumours growing in our bodies if we're up at 30 degrees? That means time? that no one will live in Canberra anymore and yeah. no one will listen to Fuzzy Logic. <laughs> Look, I mean, maybe we can, um, you know, just uh, increase the temperature of Canberra artificially so it's a bit warmer and totally work. Greenhouse! It yeah. is pretty warm here today, though. It is yes. quite warm, yeah. yeah. But I, I wonder if they've looked at the cancer levels comparing, you know, um, people with cancer in New York as compared to those who are living in Florida or, you know, people living in Melbourne as compared to those living in Cairns and just actually see if it, we can extrapolate to human cancer and how, how we deal with that. Yeah, that would be really interesting. Yeah. Though I do feel that most of our environments that we live in these days are controlled to some point. You think you can't have air conditioned, your house, your work. Most of the climates we experience, we only really experience the outside climate for a set period of time and we're usually well clothed and clothed appropriately for the temperature. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And, I mean, clothing appropriately is a big part of it as well. Yeah, so five-year plan, crocheting mice yeah, clothes. that's right. Definitely. And we're going to crowdsource that one as well. <laughs> if you want to donate balls of wool to our um, mice research. <laughs> or or neoprene for the, the bikinis for that's the researchers. Right, yeah. Yeah. yeah, definitely. definitely. <laughs> so, so many options out there for crazy stuff we could do with animals. Uh, when we get back, um, we're going to be moving up in uh, the order of the animal again and uh, making our way to amphibians, reptiles and uh, mammals uh, slowly making our way up the chain today. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic. The time is 1 minute to 12 here on 98.3 XFM Community Radio in Canberra and uh, if you do enjoy Fuzzy Logic, click on to Facebook and like our page. It's the one, the awesome autumn leaf, because uh, there we keep you up to date with what's going on and uh, what we're up to at Fuzzy. Uh, today I asked the question, seeing as we're talking about animals, what's your favourite animal out there with amazing abilities? And Anthony out there commented that he likes the uh, pistol shrimp which uh, I think is pretty awesome because that can... Uh, now, Dan, you're more of a marine scientist than me. You might be able to correct me, but it can uh, clip its claws together so fast, faster than the speed of sound. It yeah, creates, that's right. It creates superheated bubble water down, down below, which is kind of cool. Yeah, it uses it as defence and also attracting mates. So, yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's a very cool little animal. Yeah, and the other animal that I know nothing about is the uh, bombardier beetle. Now, what does the bombardier beetle do, Dan? Yeah, so the bombardier beetle actually has two um, reservoirs of chemicals in its backside, um, which it can mix together to protect itself. And what it does, when the chemicals mix together, it produces a very, very hot substance. It's almost boiling point of water, so it's just shy of 100 degrees Celsius. And they can shoot that out at 500 pulses per second. So wow. they, they, they only usually send out 70 pulses in, in, one, in one attack. Um, but, yeah, it's extremely hot and extremely um, annoying for whatever animal it comes in contact with. So small animals, it'll actually kill and it'll actually sting and burn our skin. Wow. So it's kind of like those um, 
bleach laundry bottles you get from from the shops where they've got the two chemicals in different sides of the bottle and then when you squeeze it they mix together and have the chemical reaction yeah that's what the beetle does yeah so one of the chemicals is hydrogen peroxide which a lot of people use to bleach their hair and the other one is a chemical they use in film development um so when they mix those two together it's it's highly exothermic or produces a very very hot substance Crazy. Yeah. Right, so watch out for the bombardier beetle. Do don't we have don't them in poke them in the head. I'm not sure if we have them. There's some very nasty ones in South Africa Okay. Um, that you have to watch out for yeah. when you're over there. All right. Maybe we could take that cockroach chip implant thing <laughs> and control yeah. it so we can like, shoot it at people. That would be like warfare with beetles. <laughs> Shooting bombardier beetles. <laughs> Crazy fun. Yeah, yeah this, that's the biological warfare of the future. <laughs> yeah, know. definitely. Definitely. Oh, man. We'll be ruled by an insect nation. <laughs> All right, let's get out of the insect world now. Let's move up to... Uh, we made our way to vertebrates with mice, so let's stick in that area. Uh, into amphibians and reptiles, though. And, uh, Nino, we're looking at uh, one of those pest animals that's about the place, the cane toad. Yeah, so the cane toad's been around for a while and it's got those horrible bufotoxins that it secretes out of its skin and this is causing a lot of trouble throughout all of um, the Australian ecology. Uh, But interestingly enough, a new research out of the University of Sydney has discovered that in areas where a specific invasive species of plant exists, uh, blue tongues have actually evolved... uh, defences against these bufotoxins. So this plant that they found is the mother of millions, um, which originated in Madagascar, and it was brought into Australia as an ornamental plant species for gardens, like most of the invasive plant species there. It got out of the garden bed and is now a huge nuisance in Queensland and New South Wales. Luckily for us, though, uh, that plant has a type of toxin in it that is nearly identical to that of the cane toads. So... In these areas where these plants are, blue tongues have actually, which are omnivorous, have been eating these plants and have slowly over a couple of generations evolved defences to these plants. Now, when cane toads invaded these same areas, um, so Richard Shine, who's the biologist that's been studying this, him and his team noticed that these populations of lizards were um, quite tolerant to the cane toads so they're actually eating some of the cane toads as well um and basically what this means is that where these uh, mother of millions plants exist uh biologists don't need to worry about those populations of blue tongue lizards so they're quite stable because they're adapted to the bufotoxins and they've since discovered that because the mother of millions was only introduced to australia about 70 years ago that it only takes 20 to 40 generations of lizards for them to actually evolve this tolerance what? so they're concentrating their research and conservation dollars now on those populations that don't have this tolerance built in interesting interesting so they're not necessarily combating the toads at all they're just immune to to what they're doing to them yeah yeah, yeah. well i it's I think it's just an interesting story because it's showing how one invasive species has helped a native species evolve to survive another invasive species that's totally decimating ecological processes. So it's it's really a story about uh, evolution trumping ecology disruptions. Yeah, interesting. And I wonder if we could kind of isolate the the gene that might have changed in those blue tongues, see where the... That it's actually changing to, to produce that resistance if it's genetic or um, where it's happening. Yeah, well, it would be really interesting to see if it can be transported across to the other yeah. populations, like through crossbreeding, if they can raise up this tolerance throughout all of the 
blue tongue populations in mm. Australia. And, you know, is there ways they can isolate that adaptation to the bufotoxin and whether we can inoculate other animal species against the toad's toxins? Yeah. Interesting. I've just got this this movie unfolding in my head where <laughs> a, a, a bucket of radiated waste gets dumped on a blue tongue and a cane toad and they become massive yep. and they're having this warfare and, and the, the cane toad shoots this this bufo toxin at the blue tongue. It's like, nah, I've got the I've got the, the whatever it is I'm talking about. And then it gets out a big stick and, and pokes it in the head, yeah. gently. Yeah, that's it. And the then see if it can stress it out and then gives it a little backpack and yeah. then controls it. Yeah. Steven Spielberg, if you're listening, come <laughs> talk to us. Let's crowdsource that. <laughs> I have to say, Dan, when I was reading it, I was like, oh, eight-legged freaks, eight-legged freaks. No, 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 no. Uh, it's, yeah, no it's definitely interesting, the, yeah. the ways we can animals deal with to develop... Uh, against those sorts of poisons and that sort of thing. Uh, well, let's change tack a little bit now. We'll make our way from a one reptile in the blue tongue to another reptile that was uh, just a few years Just earlier. a few years earlier, yeah. yes. Well, uh, researchers at the North Carolina State University have found the dinosaur that the T-Rex wanted to be when it grew up. Um, it's the C.H. Mirkororum, which means cannibalistic monster, and this is like... The second coolest dinosaur going, right? Um, so they had lots of information about um, dinosaurs in the late Jurassic period, like Stegosaurus and Allosaurus and whatnot, and a lot of information about dinosaurs in the late Cretaceous, like the T-Rex. But there was a 60 million gap, uh, 60 million year gap that people didn't really know about. So um, these researchers went out and looked at 98 million year old rock um, to see if they could find some cool stuff there, uh, and they found this Siach dinosaur, uh, which has got thin walled bones just like the T-Rex. Um, and they've just found a juvenile fossil, which is 10 metres long, and they suspect weighs about 4,000 kilos, um, with adults packing a few thousand kilos more. Um, so I think these are, are enormous dinosaurs. They're not as big as the T-Rex, about half the size of a T-Rex, but um, until this uh, species, the CH, died out, they were so competitive they were just ruling the landscape so there wasn't any room for the T-Rex. So when the CH went extinct, that's when the T-Rex got its chance to, you know, take over the world with its tiny little arms. Yeah, and its very blind eyes. <laughs> yes. I think that's the funny thing about the T-Rex is that its whole predation is dependent upon smell, so you wouldn't have to be necessarily bigger than it to compete with it. You could just be smarter or wiser or... Wiser. Can or, a dinosaur or, be wiser? Or, or wear deodorant. Yes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but um, the CH is a member of the Neovenatoridae. Yes, got it. Um, and it's the first one found in the north, uh, northern United States. So it's a pretty pretty special find. They also, um, in the same rock, found three other brand-new dinosaur species. So, you know, get excited. Wow. They've probably got all sorts of snazzy adaptations for kids to get excited about. <laughs> yep, there you go. If you're into paleontology, kids, there is a still a future in dinosaur bones. <laughs> That's right. Well, that's the thing. Like, as a kid growing up, you know, I remember um, getting into dinosaurs and all the amazing things, but I just assumed that they'd found them all. Well, like, not you know, so. No, there's yeah. so many more out there. Just and they're cool away. ones everywhere. I wanted to be a paleontologist until I got told that um, you could only find feathered dinosaurs in China. And I was like, yeah, that's not happening. So um, I refused to move to China. But, yeah, they're finding them everywhere, in Gippsland, in Victoria, and uh, all over the world they're finding feathered dinosaurs and, and new species like this sea arch, which is pretty cool that there's still new stuff out there to be found. Yeah, very impressive. Very cool. Um, 
Well, let's come back to the future now. And, uh, back to the future. <laughs> that's right. And uh, looking at uh, animals, they're a little closer to home, uh, ones that we look after, and uh, getting mixed signals from the dogs. Oh, yes. Well... <laughs> Um, we all seem to think that when dogs wag their tails, they're happy. Mm. But the latest research has shown that if the dogs are wagging their tails with a bias to the left, it's actually showing that they're quite anxious and stressed. Here I'm coming back to that stress thing again. <laughs> um, and it shows that if they approach a dog, they actually can communicate with their, their wagging their tails. So if they approach a dog that they're not comfortable with being around, they'll bias their their tail wagging to the, to the left, to the left to um, the which left. is controlled by the right-hand side of the brain, just like our movement, um, our connections. Mm-hmm. And um, so they're hoping that this research can help vets diagnose dogs um, so they can actually sit there and watch the dog wagging the tail and work out, okay, there is something wrong with this dog because it's stressed, it's showing anxious signs to the tail wagging to the left. Dog Valium. Yeah, that's it, you know, and so it also shows that when the dog is comfortable around another dog or humans or whatever, they'll actually bias their tail wagging to the right. And so I I encourage people at home, if you've got a dog, to sit down, um, poke its head gently, (laughs) and see whether the tail wagging changes. Unfortunately, with my dog down, I think even if you poked its head quite hard, it would still take it as a form of affection and wag its tail to the right. And my dog's got a dog tail, so I'm going to have to watch really closely. (laughs) Well, it'd only be a slight bias, I guess, because those tails wag backwards and forwards pretty well. Um, Just slow-mo cameras. Everyone Mm. set up your phantom rig at home and uh, (laughs) film it in slow motion to see what happens. Uh, Because they actually connected heart monitors up to these dogs and noticed there was an increase in heart rate when they approached the dog, and that's what the sign of anxiousness was. So they watched the tail and the heart rate actually increase and the tail started biasing to the left. That's interesting because, yeah, I wonder if it's... uh, And this would obviously be harder to tell, but, you know, longer-term stress, like when you are, you know, just constantly feeling pressured and stressed. I don't know where the dogs feel that. Mm. Man, I've got to find that stick, got to find that stick, (laughs) haven't found that stick yet. Ah. Um, Actually, I've got a story about that. Um, But... um, whether it's it long-term stress contributes to where their tails wag, or whether it's just that instant anxiousness, that instant stress of, oh, I'm meeting someone new. Oh, what are they going to do? Are they going to like me? Oh, what's their butt going to smell like? You know, that sort of thing. <laughs> exactly. You know, and, and you could you could extrapolate it so that when you're on the dance floor of a nightclub, you can watch people booty shaking, and if they're anxious about meeting someone for the first time, <laughs> they'll shake to the left. Shake to the left. left. Oh, you know, right. Maybe that's what the time warp is all about. Just to jump to the left. You're actually yeah. anxious. Yeah. 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 You know? But then step to the right you and cool back off. That's it. And then right. what's going to be in the cocktail is it going to be is it going to be bitter is it going to be sweet ah it's stress should I avoid this situation or should I be anxious I'm going to go and analyse the twerking again and (laughs) see whether she was anxious or quite happy about it (laughs) Uh, good life choice (laughs) but the the stress dogs um, the the story I read recently which is actually um, slightly sad in some ways was the dogs that were search and rescue dogs for September 11 um they, I was reading recently that they actually became quite stressed and anxious because they were finding it so difficult to find people in amongst all the rubble. And they felt like they were doing such a bad job that they were, well, possibly not a bad job, but they, they were getting stressed and um, and worried about it all. So they ended up having people hide amongst the rubble and amongst from the rescuers so that the dogs could find them and start feeling better about them. Have some job satisfaction. Yeah, so exactly that. So they could start feeling good again that, yes, I can find people and I can do this. 
So it's amazing. So animals oh. can definitely get stressed. It's and so sad. Yeah. Dogs. Yeah. yeah, so I wonder if the dog wagging tail uh, could be used to monitor uh, dogs in, in that, that actually have jobs that are, that are um, working like that to see how they are feeling and whether they're stressed or enjoying their work. They would have just had their tail to the left. They wouldn't have been wagging. They would have been that stressed out they by not finding yeah, people. That's right. It feels like they would have been working hard in that situation. Yeah. Let's clear the air with a bit of music. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, boys. Jake and Elwood there from the Blues Brothers with Everybody Needs Somebody to Love. Always true. We're here to love you here this morning (laughs) on Fuzzy Logic. Love you with science. That's right. uh, Does that work? Yeah, I have no idea. Sure, sure. Of course it does. Fine. Look, we're going to spread the love of science around. That's what we're here for today. Uh, We've been talking about animals and having a whole heap of fun with it. And uh, we've definitely got more animals here to talk about. We're not all done yet. Uh, Let's make our way to the magnificent world of the monotremes. Animals only found in Australia and New Guinea. Very few monotremes around. And... uh, Sian, do you want to kick us off with your little monotreme story? Well, it's not so much of a little monotreme. This one is a giant platypus that's actually been dubbed Platypus Godzilla. (laughs) So, (laughs) I admit, when I heard Platypus Godzilla, I automatically got this image of a platypus the size of my house. But it's not quite that big. Um, It's about one metre or two times the size of a regular platypus. So it's still pretty big. I mean, if you saw one of those in the wild, you'd probably be like, whoa, what the hell is that? I don't know. But, I don't know platypus looks so cute, though. I don't know whether a giant yeah, one would be like that, or you just go, oh, give it a cut. Doubly as cute. Yeah. Or um, we could just photograph it at Cockington Green, and then we would have platypus <laughs> That's true. Um, but, yes, unfortunately, you will not see any of these around anymore because the um, platypus Godzilla is between 15 and 5 million years old and it was discovered actually um, by it was identified by fossilised a fossilised molar tooth which was found at Australia's famous Riversley World Heritage Area um, now the reason that they could tell it was a platypus is that because platypi have very distinctive teeth um, like no other mammal group in the world um, they're very uh, strangely structured, apparently. And so they found this tooth, and it was massive, and so it had to be a platypus tooth. Um, but the thing is that platypus... Pl- uh, current platypi... I'm having so much trouble with that <laughs> word. Um, actually lack functional teeth. They kill their prey um, by bruising them to death between <laughs> horny pads in its mouth. So there you go. Um... So death that's, by bruising. Yeah, death by yeah. bruising. But it really raised the question about why there were these massive platypi teeth found that when normal platypi don't actually have functional teeth. And so it actually brought, and this is kind of sad, brought the um, researchers to start worrying about the extinction of platypi because not only have we found like old platypi with big teeth that were like double the size of current ones but they used to have a much wider geographical spread so um south america antarctica all over australia and now they're just in the eastern rivers of australia so that's actually a kind of sad way to end the lovely story about the platypus godzilla but 
but you know, you can always, I suppose, make it more exciting by just thinking about a giant platypus rampaging your house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is definitely kind of sad, though, to see that, to think about mm. it in that way. Um, yeah, because I didn't realise that platypus, that's how they kill their prey, because are platypus omnivores? Do they eat? Um, I, I think so. It says that uh, the ancient species would have happily crunched up small vertebrates, including lungfish, frogs and small turtles, but I imagine they also eat plants. Dan, you know more about this sort of stuff than me. What is... I, I think I think they're carnivorous. You think yeah. they're carnivorous? Yeah. That would yeah. be yeah. inclined ask, to agree. Ask, yeah. ask, ask Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> uh, but I'm pretty sure they're carnivorous. They do use um, their bills to dig up small crustaceans and worms out of the out of the bottom of the riverbeds. So yeah, but yeah. maybe maybe the ones that we see at the moment are still big and there are ones that are half the size of that and they're just really little so we don't see them and they are still everywhere Sian. maybe they haven't gone extinct maybe pocket sized platypus how good would a pocket sized platypus be unless it was a boy and the spurs and all that mm. that yeah, could that be a problem be cool. though I do find it like interesting to think about like it makes me glad that we are as big as we are because if platypus kill their prey by bruising and we've just had an insect that burns small things <laughs> to death with acid or you've got mind control if you're that small. Like, I, there's just not a lot of options at that size. You can do all sorts of crazy things. Apparently, I think it's Hillsville Sanctuary. You can now go wading with the platypi. Yeah. You can like go into the. How cool is that? That, that. So you can go and stand with them and feed them, and yeah. everyone should go to Victoria and do well, that. If they start munching on your leg, you just got to start getting worried. They're trying to. Yeah, they're trying to bruise. That's yeah. you probably wear thick protective clothing <laughs> to yeah. avoid bruising to death. Well, Wikipedia is just telling me um, that plat- the platypus is a carnivore. Yes. Um, well played, sir. Feeds on things like annelid worms, insect larva, freshwater shrimps and yabbies um, that it digs out of the riverbed with its snout or catches while swimming. Hmm. So there you go. Um, and uh, the other monotreme that we've got here in Australia is, of course, the echidna. Mm-hmm. And uh, monotremes uh, are egg-laying mammals. That's what classifies them. Uh, Australia and New Guinea are the only places they're found. And both the platypus and the echidna uh, are unique because they have a uh, spur in their hind leg. Um, now, in platypuses, the spur um, injects venom into competitors, causing pain and swelling, um, which is you know something to be aware of, especially if you're wading with them in hills. <laughs> I assume that they dealt with this problem. You don't um, wear thongs. Yeah, yeah, but it's something to be aware of if you do see a platypus in the yeah, wild. So don't compete with them. Just become their prey, because then you'll only be bruised to death. So much exactly. better. Much nicer. Um, echidnas have the, the same spur... Um, in their uh, hind leg Um, but it's a bit different and it's not actually used uh, for venom Um, researchers uh, from the University of Sydney have just recently worked out what it's actually for Um, they reckon it's for communicating during breeding Uh, so um, there's uh, each other on the head yeah, there's, there's physiological evidence, uh, both molecular and fossil evidence as well, to suggest that uh, well, the ancestors of both the platypus and the echidna were venomous. Um, so uh, giant platypus might have had, uh, probably had this spur in the hind leg as well. Um, and and um, the ancient echidna would have had that too. Um, but in recent study, uh, 
researchers from the University of Queensland, University of Tasmania, University of Sydney and the Washington University School of Medicine uh, compared the genes uh, switched on in platypus and echidna venom glands during the breeding season. And uh, so they analysed... Um, the RNA, the ribonucleic acid molecules in the glands, uh, looking for similarities, differences to determine what those secretions in the glands are used for. And they expected high levels of similarity, but found that the echidna venom gland was quite different to that from a platypus. And uh, what they found is they reckon the echidna gland actually looks more like a scent gland. Um, so instead of you know, an aggressive spurring protective role, the echidna spur secretion is probably linked with either communicating its reproductive status, so I'm ready to go, um, or uh, with females, or possibly with co- co- communicating that uh, reproductive sp- status with competing males as well. Um, so interesting, because um, obviously historically the monotreme gland contained venom, um, but the echidna has lost the ability to erect its spur, um, so lifted up on the back leg, um, and other unknown evolutionary forces have acted over millions of years, uh, which has resulted in the gradual disappearance of venom. So again, we're coming back to evolution again. Man, that Darwin guy. He was onto something there. Yeah, crazy. But echidnas, they're, they're heaps cool. I, I recently met an echidna. Um, <laughs> With, with Dan here, actually, um, discovered that their fur is actually quite soft, but the echidna that Dan picked up peed all over itself so that we wouldn't eat it, which I thought was an interesting tactic. Yeah. Don't, don't eat me, I'll pee all over myself. And if you're watching closely, it was wagging its tail to the left. <laughs> it was quite I'm really stressed. Don't touch yeah. my face. Yeah. I'm going to pee on um, you. <laughs> interestingly, uh, possums have developed a similar sort of mechanism against being eaten in that they defecate on themselves when they think they're under stress and it makes the meat taste absolutely terrible so you, aboriginal most i believe this is what i've been told in some areas that they tell young children not to kill possums because it's a waste of time because the meat ends up tasting just, so terrible just bruise it to death that's yeah. the way to do it but what i want to know is what monotremes live in papua because we all know about the echidnas. Oh yeah. Yeah. So they've got uh, two, I think, two subspecies of echidna that live in Papua New Guinea. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's cool. That's very cool. Do they pee on themselves? They do. Yep. Yes, they they. Yep. Act just like Australian ones. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Mm. Another animal that pees on itself is uh, uh, the uh, vulture um, living out in the desert. But that doesn't pee on itself for protection. That pees on its own legs for cooling. Uh, so, because obviously quite that's hot in the desert. That's an adaptation, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's right. Quite hot in the desert, quite warm. So what are you going to do? You pee on your legs, the pee evaporates, and that evaporation provides a cooling process for your legs. Happy days. And so you start to cool down and feel much better. Well, it's, it's crazy. Animals and pee come up a lot. Like, sharks pump their own urine around their body to keep themselves... Um, regulated so that they don't become dehydrated by osmosis. That is so skin. gross. Yeah, that's why I could understand people who eat shark meat. I'm like, you know what it's full of. And, and we do w- now. Yeah, and when you go to, to do your scuba diving license, they tell you if you get cold underwater, pee in your wetsuit. Ew! So it floats around your body and keeps your body warm. That's really gross. Yeah. No, no, that's that's true. The only thing I had, although I've been told if you got a dry suit, it's not so good. No, no. no. <laughs> I went um, scuba diving earlier this year in Thailand and mine's instructor halfway through the dive stops on the bottom taps me on the shoulder he's like you've got to help me off with my air i'm like what are you doing and so i help him 
off with his air pack, put it on the ground, and then he starts unzipping his wetsuit. He mo- motions to me to turn it around. <laughs> I'm like, What's going on? And then he motions that he's going to have a little pee because um, he's wearing a dry suit. So he has to take it off, pee, and then put it back on. Um, that's so, so that's gross. How do you how do you put on a dry suit underwater and not get wet? Well, I think he got wet yeah, after that. Yeah. <laughs> you might as well just pee in it. If exactly. You're do with that. Exactly. <laughs> But yes, I have been uh, with a group of boys uh, surfing in Wales and they took thermoses in the morning to pour hot water inside their wetsuits before going into the water because otherwise you can't actually surf because it was winter. So it was snowing and they were oh, surfing man. and the only way they could deal with it was they had like fully enclosed toes and everything and they poured the hot water into the top of their wetsuits before going into the surf. They could have gone to Hawaii. It's warm there. And clearly the British are much more sophisticated than the Aussies. We just pee in our wetsuits. They take a thermos of tea and pour it down. We're the land that has monotremes that pee on themselves so I think it's only fair that Aussies do such things. Exactly. Exactly. We're just adapting to yes. our environment. <laughs> well, I had an absolute ball talking about animals today. Um... And uh, I hope you've had fun listening as well. I just want to plug an event that uh, Fuzzy Logic's running in the near future at the uh, ANU. It's happening on Tuesday, the 10th of December. And uh, we're talking about MOOCs, which is uh, something that I only found about, out about recently, which is massive open online courses. And uh, they're a growing phenomenon in the higher education sector, opening doors to a whole lot of people who may not have had uh, the means or the access to pursue tertiary-level education. So basically anyone, anywhere, can access these MOOCs um, and they can help deliver a taste of what actually happens on university campus to future students as well. Um, you know, and these are happening in areas of science, technology, engineering, mathematics, uh, these sort of taster foundation courses. So we're going to be discussing those for a night. Uh, Rod Taylor, regular fuzzy producer, is going to be panelling, um, looking after the panel. And the panel, it's quite a distinguished lineup. We've got uh, Nobel laureate Professor Brian Schmidt is on the panel. Uh, prize-winning educator Dr Paul Francis, uh, Australia's chief scientist and former vice-chancellor of the ANU, Professor Ian Chubb, is going to be there, as well as uh, assistant professor of education at the a- uh, at uh, UC, Dr Ian Hay, and uh, deputy vice-chancellor of the ANU, Professor Marnie Hughes-Warrington. So some fantastic people there um, that are going to be joining us uh, to talk about MOOCs and the pros and cons and what fantastic stuff can happen through them. So that's uh, Tuesday the 10th of December, 6 till 7pm at the ANU. Uh, There is a link on our Facebook page if you want to find out more, so jump on there and uh, you can see what's going on. Uh, But we'll keep talking about that in the lead-up to it. And if you do have any questions, feel free to bring them along because we will jump to the audience for some Q&A too. Hey, I better thank all my presenters in the studio this morning for a fantastic show. Thanks, Sian. Thanks very much, Brad. Thank you, Nina. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. It's been a blast. And Phoebe, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> and thank you, listeners, for tuning in once again to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. We'll be back next week for more science fun right here on 2XXFM Community Radio in Canberra.